Welcome, everyone. I'm delighted to have you here. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm a vice president at the Aspen Institute, and I lead our economic opportunities program. I'm thrilled to welcome you to today's book talk about wealth supremacy, um, how the extractive economy and the bias rules of capitalism drive today's crises. Um, delighted to have Marjorie Kelly here and to be uh, launching her, her book sales uh, start today, right? So, That's right. Today's the kickoff. So today is, is the day. So we're excited to, to do that. Um, and, uh, and just to get started, just to mention this conversation is part of the Aspen Institute Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we explore the changing landscape of economic opportunity in the United States, the implications for individuals, families, and communities across the country, and ideas for change. Uh, thanks to everybody for joining us today, both in person and virtually. We have a, a lovely virtual audience, too. Um, if this is your first time joining one of our events, we do record all of our events um, and host them on our website. So you can find them at as.pn slash EOP events. Um, so I'm super excited for today's uh, book talk. The It's a great book. Um, I have uh, written all over it, whatever. <laughs> uh, really enjoyed reading it. Um, so so recommend. Uh, and, it's, and it's really helpful, I think, to understand kind of the bigger picture challenges that we face. Um, at the Economic Opportunities Program, we do a lot of work with um, a variety of different kinds of organizations across the country that are trying to connect people to better opportunities. So we work with um, kind of workforce organizations, we work with community colleges, we work with local government agencies, we work with community and finance institutions and other organizations supporting small businesses. So just this wide variety of, of organizations that are trying to sort of help people figure out how they can get a good job or how they can start a business and build a sustainable livelihood. And that's all really, really important work, right? Um, and, and there's an, a lot of amazing organizations that do this work. But I've been doing this work for uh, a, lot of, a lot of years now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, if, and I have been sort of interested in this work as, a, as an anti-poverty strategy for, for a, a longish career now. And, and, you know, when I step back from that, it's like this is good work and I've seen organizations make a real meaningful difference in some people's lives. But when I step back, those problems, those problems of, of, of poverty, of working poverty, of the racial wealth gap, of, you know, of, of, you know households that just don't even have $400 in an emergency, like these mm -hmm. problems are just still with us. They're, they haven't gotten better and in some cases they've gotten worse. And so, so, you know, sort of stepping back from that, you kind of try to think about, like, what is this bigger picture that, that keeps, keeps, challenging, keeps challenging all that work? So, and I think that that's kind of the, the piece that this book really, really starts to, to um, paint out. So there's a couple of other things I wanted to say about what I loved about this book. Um, one, I think it's a, a nice kind of um, simple, compelling explanation for sort of what's happening with our economic system. I um, So I'll admit I've, I've actually studied quite a lot of economics in my past, but, um, but the truth is is that you don't actually have to get very far in economics mm -hmm. before you get to sort of like the inputs are, you know, land, labor, and capital for, you know, for our system of production. And, you know, what March sort of, sort of points out is, yeah, but the only one we actually care about in this system is capital. Mm -hmm. And land and labor are just there for, you know, um, not a very good ride. So that's kind of a problem for us. You kind of go, oh yeah, that probably isn't the most sustainable system. Um, so, I, so I think she really kind of makes that argument um, that is kind of complicated, but makes it in a way that it's, it's fairly straightforward. She goes also, I think, to the, to the part that's complicated. I think she really explains well all of the sort of complicated financial jargon that kind of is used around how how we sort of think about how things should happen and, and, and uncovers kind of sort of the, the, the wealth bias, as mm -hmm. you call it, uh, within, that, mm -hmm. within that jargon. And I think that that's really well done. Um, I particularly appreciate, though, that this book is not a finger-pointing book, mm -hmm. right? It's not sort of like, a, you know, let's you know, grab our pitchforks and whatever sort of thing, right? Um, it, it really kind of names sort of this, um, this, this system that's on autopilot that nobody uh -huh. kind of really, really sort of intentionally, you know, there's no sort of malintent behind it. It's, it's this kind of right. grew up and, 
and is now operating in a way that I think is not how um, any of us would sort of sort of intend. And then the, the the final thing I guess I wanted to say is I also really appreciate how um, the courage to kind of center values in a conversation mm -hmm. about economics and finance. Um, and, and I really like, you know, economics is a social science. And, and you write, values form the moral heart of a social system. Yeah, but economics, um, uh, much as economists, uh, and my husband's an economist, actually some of my very best friends are economists. I really like <laughs> economists. Uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> they will sort of dress these things up in very fancy mathematical equations. and. You know, uh, but it is a social science. Um, and, and you also write that uh, morality in an economy is something we're taught is unneeded, irrelevant, possibly embarrassing. Mm. And I think, you know, with that technical language and all the math around it and everything, when you start talking about sort of more human dimensions, it, people sort of, you know, I think, I think we can kind of um, feel like, oh, people are going to think I'm too soft or, you know, and, and, and I think that's that's been a real challenge in, in how we have our conversations about about um, our economic system and and what it's doing for us and what it's not. Um, so so I, the last thing I'll say, reading this book, um, I, I felt like oh you can think two things very much at the same time. Like you can say oh this is so true, and you can also say nobody believes this. And, <laughs> and, and then you realize like, oh, actually, I think maybe people do believe this, but we just haven't really had the right frame for saying it. So last thing I'll say, this is the Aspen Institute. What do we love at the Aspen Institute more than anything? Dialogue. We love talking. And what I really appreciate is one of your chief recommendations was, we need to talk about this more. Yeah. So welcome to the Aspen Institute. We love to talk. <laughs> so let's get talking. Uh, but before we get talking, uh, I, I just want to do a couple of things for our live stream audience. So just to a little housekeeping here, all attendees are muted. Um, we welcome questions. We will have time at the end for, for Q&A. So I hope everybody in the room and, and online is ready for questions online. Please use the Q&A box on your screen and somebody in the room will, will sort of represent you. Um, uh, we also encourage you to share your rooms and there's that chat function online. Um, we always get, we have this great audience. You, you all are experts. You have things to share. You have experiences and perspectives. We love when you share that in the chat. Please uh, introduce yourself to and, and share those with us. Um, appreciate everybody's feedback. Uh, online, there will be a, a survey that will pop up at the end. So please, um, please let us know what you think. Um, everybody in person and online can also always send us an email at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org to let us know what you think. We love people's feedback and we're always trying to make things better. We also encourage you to uh, tweet um, or whatever they call it these days. Uh, <laughs> our hashtag is talk opportunity. Uh, if you have any technical issues, you can put a note in the chat or email us again, eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Again, we're recording, and the email and the uh, webinar will be shared via email and posted on our website. Um, closed captions are available. Please use the CC button at the bottom of the video to activate those. Um, a note for everybody in the room: we are also having a book sale at the end of the uh, of today's discussion, um, and uh, three uh, lucky contestants will will win a free book at the end. Uh, so please stick around for that. Um, uh, and uh, and Marjorie will will sign books at, at the end. So whether you buy one, whether you win a free one, whatever, whether you steal one, um, <laughs> she'll she'll sign it. Um, okay, I am done now. Right. <laughs> so now we get talking. So Marjorie, um, uh, you and I have been working on these issues for some time. I mentioned sort of a little bit of my journey on this. Um, uh, you know, you do this work for a while and, and you know, you, you see things that are working really well that give you some optimism, but sometimes you step back and it's sort of like, wow, like we just yeah. have, still have such a way to go. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about your journey and, and what brought you to, to writing this book. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Maureen. <clears throat> well, thanks everyone for coming. It's fun to have an in-person event um, and, of course, people online too. <clears throat> yeah, I've been doing this work for more than 30 years, Maureen. You and I have walked uh, together uh, in, in recent years. I started back in the late 80s. I started Business Ethics Magazine, and I, uh, <clears throat> I wanted to only talk about good business people and good investors. I thought they would 
that was how you would change the world. And I, I, I met a lot of people trying to do so. I've, I've known so many fabulous uh, leaders in these fields. But I also saw things were getting worse and not better. You know, there, there was a time companies did not do massive layoffs. And, and now, now it's routine. <clears throat> Sending jobs overseas, demanding tax breaks from, from cities just to stay. Boeing demanded tax breaks at one point. They had been in a city for 100 years, and suddenly they needed a tax break in order to stay. So there was a kind of ruthlessness I saw that was becoming more and more the norm, even though uh, there was more social investing happening, going, going on. There were Every corporation had an ethics officer. They were all doing sustainability reports. And so all of these supposed ways to make corporations better were catching on, and yet behavior was getting worse. <clears throat> and I, I, I saw that the problems are systemic. It really um, goes down to the core aim of the system, which is, as corporations say, maximize returns to shareholders. And shareholders are, are the wealthy. 89% of shares are held um, uh, by the richest 10%, and mostly by the upper reaches of that. You know, and also we saw plastics filling the ocean and birds dying. And so there was this, this crisis brewing. And so much of the change that we were working on didn't touch the essence of the system, which was in overdrive and on autopilot. That's really a, a lot of what I'm trying to say in the book is that it isn't. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, there are CEOs we can call on the carpet, and there are billionaires who we can point a finger at, and, and you know, all of that is right. But if you if you eliminated all the CEOs and the billionaires tomorrow, and even the directors of say um, all the institutional investments, it wouldn't make any difference. The system would reconstitute itself. It, it wouldn't. The individuals don't, in the end, in a certain odd way, matter. Donella Meadows said this. She's a systems theorist and was, unfortunately, uh, no longer living. But Donella Meadows, do people know her? Some people know that name. You should really look, look her up if you haven't. She said, the most effective place to intervene in a system is at the level of mind that gives rise to the system. What's the way of thinking? And the, the way of thinking is what I'm pointing out. I'm calling wealth supremacy. It's the idea that wealthy people matter more than others. We also call it capital. Capital is the working face of wealth. Capital holds the power. In corporations, only capital has a vote. Um, you, capital might have, uh, you know, might hold shares for couple of minutes. <laughs> and yet it has a power that workers who've been there for 30 years don't have. So workers are oddly considered outsiders mm -hmm. in the corporation, whereas capital is, alone is considered an insider. And there's something, it's very Alice in Wonderland uh, that, we, that we believe that. It's a little bit like saying, well, only men are persons, or only white people are persons, right? That's a bias. And there, there's a bias going on inside our system, and it says only wealthy people matter. If you own capital, then you matter. Uh, and if you don't, then, then you don't matter. So, so I'm pointing this out. And as you said, Maureen, it's, it's, um, it's on autopilot. And so it's the mind. I think it's the mind of the system that we need to start talking about and challenging. Yeah, that's great. And, and just to sort of start with this, I think you, know, you start this book with this example that I just found like horrifying, hmm. right, in terms of how, you know, how this thinking gets applied to water, right? So right. we all need water. We're familiar with the crisis, unfortunately, in Flint and then mm -hmm. Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, you know, and, and we were looking at our climate change and everything and places are running out of water mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. there's a whole problem out, out west now, you know, in terms of thinking about the Colorado River and and right. you write about how finance is thinking about water. And talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I opened the book with a story of um, <clears throat> um, a hedge fund out there buying water rights in, in Colorado and in California. Uh, there is an, another big financial conglo conglomerate that's out there buying, buying water rights. 
And Fortune magazine said a few years back, it said water is going to be to the 21st century what oil was to the 20th century. It's the precious commodity that determines the wealth of nations. And that's really right. The, the UN says by mid-century, um, two-thirds of the world is going to have a shortage of clean, fresh water. Two-thirds of the world. Already there are wars over water that if you look at very, very deeply, it's, it's water. <clears throat> and so how does big capital look at this crisis? They view it as an opportunity for what they call wealth creation. And I call it wealth extraction, right? Um, they want to go out and buy water rights so that they can make money. When water becomes scarce, they want to charge a lot of money as a form of conservation. And there's something kind of crazy about, crazy about that, frightening about that. And actually, they want to do it with ecosystem services in general. There was something, a new vehicle created on the New York Stock Exchange a couple years ago <clears throat> called Natural Asset Companies. Um, I don't know if anybody's tracking this. And this is part of what, uh, when I talk about the sort of the mumbo jumbo and there's a lot, there's a colonization by capital that's ongoing, but most of us don't see it. We don't think of finance as having anything to do with us, actually. Um, and so, but, but the idea of natural asset companies is they want to own forests, they want to own coral reefs, and turn these into, you know, monetize these ecosystem services as a new form of, of capital extraction. And I find it very, very frightening. But here's the interesting thing. Um, I, I thought, well, there's going to be an outrage on the left about this, right? So I got on the internet. I'm going to, I'm going to look up and see who's, who's raising a ruckus about this. Almost no one. We're not even talking about it. You know, we're kind of asleep. We're like, you know, capital is out there. They're already monetizing our identities. They, they want to own the gene code. Um, you know, big, big companies, Walmart, I believe, is the largest company in the world. It's flattened mom and pop companies. Amazon has basically taken over the book industry. Um, they sell more than probably two-thirds of all the books are being sold through Amazon. So there's this kind of colonization going on that we just take as normal. We think there's nothing we can do. We think it's normal. And, um, and, it's, and it's, it's frightening. And I think there's a lot we can do. So I, what I'm trying to do, first of all, is help us see, help us see what's happening. Yeah. No, I thought it was so interesting, this point that, you know, nobody's really noticing uh, that, you know, I mean, if I think about water, right, mm -hmm, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, it is this idea that nothing can be publicly right. held, held sort of in a public trust, right? Um, that yeah. everything can be sort of privately owned. And yeah, that's right. That's, that's right, Maureen. I mean, so yeah, we've been taught to fear public ownership. Yeah. That's communism. That's bad. Government's inept. You know, government can't do anything right. The private sector is, is more intelligent, more nimble. Well, right now, 85% of Americans, we get our water from a municipally or, or locally owned utility. And evidence shows that we have better service and lower costs as a result. Because if you have a... a um, you know, a, a municipally owned, and that means city government or maybe county own, owns and runs the water system. Who are they accountable to? They're accountable to the mayor. They're accountable to the county supervisors. If you if you're upset about something, you can get somebody on the phone. You can you can raise a you can raise a complaint. Right? There's local accountability for water, um, and, and in particular in the UK, in the United Kingdom, Margaret Thatcher came in and privatized all kinds of things, including water and electricity and airports, and I don't know what all she, she privatized. But they found, um, it was almost like she ran an inadvertent experiment in the difference between private control of water and public control of water. And they found <clears throat> that when you have private control of water, they, they raise the, the prices because, of course, they want to give money to their shareholders. They want to give big dividends to their shareholders. And they, how do they do that? They cut the service. They degrade the service. That's how you make, make more profit. And there's this one area, Thames Water um, is, uh, is one of the big private uh, water firms in uh, serving London. And there are people in London, they've had sewage gush into apartment windows in London. It's so bad. And there's a, there's a part of the Thames River that they now call Crappuccino. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, it's so polluted from this, this water. So um, we have, you know, water is, should be a public trust. Mm -hmm. Water should belong, it should be governed in the public interest, it, should, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be privatized, it shouldn't be used as profit maximization. And, and I use that example because what, one of the things I'm trying to say is there's two kinds of systems. There's extractive capitalism and there's a democratic economy. And the democratic economy already exists in various pieces and we can grow it, we can do it together, and we can make that our next, our next system. And it's not just, it's not just small stuff. It's, um, it, can, it can operate at scale, too. And, and we, we do have this choice. Yeah, great. And one of the things I think you do a nice job of is, is you know, sort of explaining some of the terminology. And, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you just wanted to talk a little bit about sort of that. And particularly, I was thinking, like, this issue of fiduciary responsibility right. and how that one is, yeah. has come up, right? You know, um, just talk a little bit about sort of, like, some of the words and what they mean. Sure. And, yeah, and, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Thanks, Marie. <laughs> yeah, you know, I... I ran a small business for 20 years. I've, I've lectured at a lot of business schools. I, I, in, in a lot of ways, I feel like I've been kind of a spy in the house of business <laughs> <laughs> for a long time. So I, I kind of I get the operating system. And I, one of the th what I try to do in the book is unpack this operating system and show how it's, it's, it's threaded through with bias. And I try to do it in a way that's accessible to regular people, right? And, and, and strip away the mumbo jumbo. Well, one of the things I talk about is, is fiduciary duty, right? Fiduciary duty is a, a, a term that applies to <clears throat> investment management. You know, if you place your investments with a, an investment advisor or a mutual fund or investment manager, they have an obligation to act in your interest and not, not go off and invest the money in their crazy uncle or <laughs> go to the Bahamas or, or something, right? So, so that's... That's right, that's legitimate, that's necessary. But there's, what I say is that there's another piece hiding inside fiduciary duty, which we tend not to notice. And that is that only gains to capital matter, nothing else matters, right? So if you own a mutual fund and that mutual fund holds shares in Exxon, then fiduciary duty says, well, the job of Exxon is to drive up its share price and to have as much profit as possible. And preserving life on Earth, uh-uh. <laughs> it doesn't count in fiduciary duty. So there's this, and, and there's a lot of people working on that and trying to change that. So I don't want to pretend that I'm the first person who's noticed this. But um, it's an example of how these technical terms, these Fiduciary duty is part of the operating system of, of investment. Um, and share, uh, CEOs of corporations will say, well, I have a fiduciary duty to my shareholders. And that basically means don't talk to me about anything else. This is the only thing that matters. So it's, it's intended as a conversation stopper. Um, but, and what I'm trying to say is it's really a bias. It says creating more wealth for the wealthy is the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters. And that's, it's, it's, it's embedded in in the operating system of the economy. And let me give another example, um, and that's materiality. And these terms, they sound boring, they sound technical, right? But that's part of their superpower uh, because we're taught, well, it's just technical stuff, right? Um, so materiality, this is a rule uh, of accounting uh, in finance and it's a, uh, and in, of corporations, both. And what you're, what you're taught, and what the law professors will very sternly warn you, is that you have, there, you have a sacred duty to, um, to, uh, to take care of capital, to fiduciary duty to take care of capital, and you have to report anything that's material to investors. Um, we might remember um, the woman who went to prison because she lied to investors about um, she was oh, creating. Theranos. Uh, is it Theranos? Yeah. Yeah. She was creating a new product and she pretended that it that it was working as a blood testing device and it didn't work. So she went to prison because she lied lied to investors. So anything you know, she needed to report to investors. Well, by the way, our product doesn't work. <laughs> you know, or if you have a lawsuit pending, you have to report that to to um, to your investors. It makes sense, right? That's. If it's material, you know, material means 
corporeal, it means physical, right? If I, if I kick this podium, it would hurt my foot, right? That's material. But in the funny uh, upside down world of financial accounting, what's material is what affects the ethereal numbers that affect shareholders, it affects share price, then, it, then it's material. If it's the physical earth, if it's degraded water systems, if it's people thrown out of jobs and their families are ruined, maybe for generations, mm -mm, not material. None of that's material unless it affects capital. So I say it's a perfect tautology of capital bias. If it matters, if it affects capital, it's real. It's material. If it affects anybody else, uh-uh. It's, it's not material. It's not real. This is a formal principle of accounting. Um, so those are just some examples of of how the bias is, is hidden in, in the norms of the system. Yeah, no, and, and like you say, there are people working on changing this in terms exactly. of improving reporting about various things about environmental outcomes and, and those kinds of things. But yeah, these right. are the things that typically are not right. told. You know, if, if it's not material to capital, we just don't have to talk about it. Right. right. So it's, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, so also, but let's also just talk about sort of, well, what does that end up, end up meaning? Because I, I feel like it's, it's also gotten to the point where we just sort of, um, you know, so we just accept that, okay, um, so this is good business. This mm -hmm. is, you know, that's what you do to run a good business. And, you know, the result might be that, you know, students have a lot of debt or, you know, people have mortgages they can't afford, they lose their homes, mm -hmm. like, but it's just business, right? And, you know, sort of, so maybe talk a little bit about what we've come to accept because, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how, how this sort of financialization of the economy has, you know, affected actually yeah. people's lives and what we've just come to accept about that. Yeah, this is good. Um, We've been writing about this at the Democracy Collaborative, where I'm a, um, a fellow. <clears throat> there is a, a phenomenon that economists have actually warned us about literally for decades. Um, it's called financialization. And I think of financialization as a problem as large as climate change. You, you might remember um, Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, and he had run around with his PowerPoint for many, many years. <laughs> and there were all these complicated charts about how too much carbon emissions and it creates a greenhouse effect and blah, blah, blah. It was very, very frightening, but it was very technical at first. And I think that um, climate scientists had known about it long before it showed up in the public. I think something similar needs to happen with financialization. So financialization means there's too much financial wealth in the world. Now, that kind of blows our mind, right? Because we think of financial wealth as good. How can you have too much of it, right? Um, but you can. And it's, it's, it's similar to um, carbon because in the aggregate is when it becomes a problem, right? We, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to have a little bit of, a, of an investment portfolio, you get your statement and you see the numbers have gone up and you wish they went up more. <laughs> and that's normal, right? In the same way that when you're, you know, you want to set your thermostat where you want to set it and you want to drive your car as much as you want to, you want to drive it. But when we do these things as individuals in the aggregate, we have an, an effect shows up that um, uh, is, is counterintuitive, wasn't, wasn't what we intended. This has happened with financialization. So when there's too much financial wealth in the world, what that means is, you know, you're, you're, you're shifting income, for example, corporations shifting in from, from capital to labor when they send jobs overseas, when they take part-time uh, jobs and make that the norm instead of having a full-time job. I mean, 40% of jobs are now part-time, contingent, um, insecure, gig, gig subcontract, various kinds. We don't even keep the score. I mean, this was a survey uh, that the federal government did a number of years ago, and they don't even do it every year. <clears throat> A lot of jobs are now insecure, um, and that, that's one of the results of financialization because we've been shifting more and more to capital, more and more to financial assets. Um, you know, we talk about you know, CEO pay being a problem. Well, CEO pay is about 95% uh, stock options, so they only get paid uh, in, in the, the big bucks if they, if they get their share price up. 
rising um, uh, portfolios uh, of the wealthy also means rising debt for other people, right? So government, individuals, uh, you know, families are swimming in debt, college debt, mortgage debt. When there's too much uh, you know, uh, health care debt, when there's too much money in too few hands, they're out there bidding on houses. Houses have become a new financial asset. And that drives up the price of housing, so the rest of us can't afford, can't afford to buy houses. Uh, young people can't, can't get good jobs because the jobs have been sent overseas or turned into part-time. So there are all these effects that show up in the system when you have this aggregate level of financial wealth. And, uh, and this is one of the key things that we need to start talking about. Yeah. Do you remember the statistic, because I don't remember it in the book, but uh, how much like, you know, financial assets versus GDP? Oh, right, right. Yeah, so when I was a kid in the 1950s, financial assets as a whole were roughly equal to GDP. And GDP, gross domestic product, that just means all the flows of income and spending. You get a paycheck, you spend it, you know, that's, that's GDP. Right, those fl that's a flow of income and spending, but on top of that, there's really a sphere of, of financial assets, and that's business equity, it's bonds, it's other forms of debt. So when you look at all these uh, all these assets in aggregate, they used to be equal to GDP. Now, financial assets are five times GDP, five times, and yet. The system tells us financial assets have to grow every quarter, every year, into infinity, and they have to grow faster than GDP. So what it means is they're sucking more, more and more um, income out of the real economy of jobs and spending and, and sending it up into the sphere of, of the wealthy. Um, so yeah, yeah. too much financial assets, it, it really, um, it harms us. Yeah, no, I thought that was so interesting because you talked about how all of those financial assets really represent kind of a claim on something that's in the real world, but now right. they're five times larger than what's in the real world. So right. like you start to really get a, a feel for kind of the instability of that kind of a, of a system. Right. Um, so right. yeah, and I, and I think about, you know, I think about sort of like, Financier is a word that comes from the French of the like pre-revolutionary France. It was the financier supporting the mm. Sun King there, Louis the Fourteenth, and um, mm. and uh, you know, and mm -hmm. I think about sort of before, like uh, in the late eighteen hundreds and early, you know, and sort of going into the early nineteen hundreds and before the Great Depression. Like the U.S. was a very un, you know, very unequal, uh -huh. but also very unstable economy, right? Very right. big booms and busts. And I think this is kind of mm -hmm. what happens when mm -hmm. you have so much uh, concentrated financial assets. Assets. It's you know, and so um, mm -hmm. so it can be so to your like inconvenient truth movie about it. Like it can be the consequences can be terrible, the, and, um, and they can be huge. Yeah. And we don't we tend not to trace them back. Right. I mean, I think it's taken a while for journalists to catch up with climate change. And now, when you see about a hurricane or you hear you know a, a dam that's broken um, or flooding, down in paragraph three, it'll say. Well, you know, this flooding, this this fire uh, is likely related to climate change. So we're starting to connect the dots. We should do that with financialization when we see, you know, massive layoffs or, uh, you know, two thirds student of student debt crisis. Student debt crisis. This is related to financialization. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of knowledge that we need. We need to understand this is a large process that's working against us, and and we need to start uh, connecting the dots. Yeah. Can you also talk a little bit, because I think you do touch on this, you know, sort of this intersection. I mean, we, you, you call it wealth bias, right, or, or capital bias. And, mm -hmm. you know, we think of all kinds of biases in our society, right? But maybe you could talk about the intersection of sort of wealth bias and sort of, you know, racial bias and, and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a really important one. And thanks for bringing that up. Um, a lot of wealth in our society originally came from extraction from people of color all over the world, right? I mean, it happened in this country through, through slavery and through um, redlining and, <clears throat> and, you know, the Tulsa massacre. Some black families start to get a little bit of wealth and then, and then what they have is torn down. And this, this happened worldwide with imperialism where, in, you know, nations of color, particularly in Africa, were considered 
the overseas possessions of European countries. So this property, I think people of color understand better than anyone that property can be is a, is a weapon. You know, we're taught that property is sacred and needs to be protected, and, and, it, and it does to a certain extent. But it's also a weapon that can be used against people. And, um, and so a lot of wealth came initially from extraction from people of color. And now, um, so one of the things I say in the book is that, um, is that um, <clears throat> racial discrimination or racial, we'll say racial bias, inflicts harm across generations. There are people, you know, families don't own houses today and haven't had that run up of wealth that housing has, has permitted for, for white families. So, so it inflicts harm across generations. Capital bias, okay, so, so racial bias, um, you know, continues. Capital bias accelerates. Because the more wealth, the more financial wealth there is, the even more is needed next year. So there's this huge sphere of financial wealth, but it needs to keep growing. And so it's going to extract even more in the future. And that's why it's trying to financialize water. It's trying to financialize coral reefs and forests. It'll grab anything it can because it's this force that wants to grow exponentially. I mean, the first rule of the system is no amount of wealth is ever enough. It's, that's, that's the essential norm around which the whole system is, is built. And it's, built into investment, you know, it's built into corporations. You buy stock, you want it to go up. You want that company to get bigger and bigger and bigger, you know. So, um, so this growth imperative is, is built in. And, um, and so, so what do we do with that, about that? Well, we have to forefront racial equity, right? I mean, you know, accounting for debts is, is, is essential to any uh, successful economy. There's a huge debt that, that's owed to people of color, and I think reparations is, is, is needed. But you, if you only focus on, on racial equity, what we're doing is we're leaving this extractive system intact to keep running, and it's gonna, it's gonna extract from all of us, including people of color, who are gonna be hit first and hardest as always, right? But it's now extracting from the environment. It's extracting from working people of all of all colors, and so it's you, you need to look at both. Um, and I, and this can sound uh, uh, you know kind of pie in the sky. But here here's an example at, at the Democracy Collaborative. We helped build the Evergreen Cooperatives in Cleveland, and these are um, they're in an inner city that's predominantly people of color, and uh, we we worked with larger large anchor institutions like Cleveland Clinic and, um, and other um, ho university hospitals to bring their laundry to this commercial laundry that's owned by workers. And initially, 60% of the workers were formerly incarcerated. That was a deliberate hiring decision, right? So we're gonna, we're gonna empower workers through worker ownership. We're gonna forefront people of color in that. And by the way, we're gonna power this company through uh, anchor institution contracts. And it's, it's successful. There's a couple hundred workers now own this company doing commercial, and they're doing all their laundry for, for Cleveland Clinic. So these, these uh, um, the steps that we take, the models that we build are, are very down to earth and, and they work. I mean, but we, you know, understanding the big problem, I think, helps us understand the nature of, of the solutions. Yeah, great, because that was what I was going to go to next, because I think there is this you know, um, there it's this. It doesn't have to be this way, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I think you know, it's it's funny when you talk about things and we talk about sort of financialization and this kind of thing. It can, like, you know, you know, you get the like. So what do you want? Like public ownership, like communism, whatever, right? And it's sort of like, well, no, that's not what I'm saying, right? You know, so sort of, mm -hmm. like, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's sort of like we want to make free markets actually free, free hmm. of like wealth bias and make them work for all the market actors, not just some of them, right? So um, so let's talk about a little bit about some of these examples that, you, mm -hmm. that you've seen. Mm -hmm. You just talked about, um, you just talked about that. You've talked about sort of management and forests, um, right. other places right. around the world that we see these kinds of systems. Talk a little bit about sure, a few sure. examples of, you know, how it actually can be otherwise. Yeah, well, um, one of the things we need is a great ownership transition. We can't have the 1% owning everything, right? Um, 
and so that includes people a chance to own their own homes, free, free of debt, if, if, if we can imagine such a thing, it means people need to own their workplaces. We need, we need a big, a big uh, movement for worker ownership. And Maureen, you've worked on a lot of great work uh, on that. We helped um, some colleagues of mine help design the Fund for Employee Ownership at the Evergreen Co-ops in Cleveland, buying, using investor capital, buying companies, converting them to employee ownership. So workers are the owners in, in the end. And there's money to be made for investors um, without having to own everything. So, so those, you know, we need, um, and, and we do need uh, public ownership. I think that's part of the equation. I mean, land and water. Um, I have a colleague who's working on public ownership of pharmaceuticals. California is, is now starting to manufacture their own insulin because it's too expensive, right? So I think we do need more public ownership and we need to begin to think, well, where does that make sense? You know, water is, is, uh, is, is an obvious one. <clears throat> we also need the worker ownership in various forms of, of trust ownership and collaborative ownership. Um, and then we also need what I call the next system of capital. One of the things I did in the, uh, one of the fun things about writing the book is I said, well, okay, so um, could you still have a modern, sophisticated financial system in a democratic economy? What would that look like? So I, I, I did a gathering about a year ago. I gathered 15 experts who were working in different aspects of, of um, you could call it democratic finance. And we came up with a, a series of pathways that I think pretty much add up to a next system uh, of capital. One of the things we need is debt forgiveness. If you're gonna have all these overblown financial assets, in a lot of it's debt, um, you need to have mechanisms for forgiving debt. And Biden was doing this with, uh, with uh, education debt. He also did it with uh, debt for, for black farmers, uh, which, and then people took them to court and alleged racism, which of course was uh, not what was going on. But um, so debt forgiveness, and I and I talk, for example, about debt for nature swaps. There was like a, a several hundred million dollars in Belize. You know, a lot of these developing nations are are burdened with debt right now. There's a debt crisis. Well, they can write down. I think this was about a half, uh, about a fifty percent write down. So in other words, you forgive half the debt. Uh, and, and in return, Belize said, we're going to preserve forests. We're going to preserve uh, mango groves. We're going to preserve you know, all kinds of ecosystems. That's very different than, than the, the natural asset companies where you want Wall Street owning e ecosystem services. No, this is um, you know, trusts and, and preserved areas. Um, so you're basically, you're writing down some assets, and in return, you're preserving the, the natural world. That's a really great example, I think, of how, of how we can begin to um, get beyond all this debt. I, I will add that Germany, at the end of World War II, was swimming in debt. And, the, and through currency reform, there was a massive write-down of about 90% of their debt. And that um, turned Germany into the powerhouse that it is today. So there's a, a, a long history, a successful history of, of debt forgiveness. And we, we need to, it needs it needs to become the mentionable, uh, you know the right wing you know is hor it's horrified that any debt would be forgiven but it it needs to become a mentionable um, solution and let me add another one so as you want to sort of write down some of this debt we also want to build up the assets of those who don't have assets right um, one of the people we brought to our gathering was talking about baby bonds baby bonds I mean every 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 young person ought to have you know, a, a few assets starting out in this world, and let's let's create bonds that will give give these assets. And if you do it by um, by income or by wealth, then you sort of sidestep some of the problems of of, of racial discrimination, which are people going to scream about. Um, but you can achieve the same result, you know, by looking at 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 wealth, the wealth deficit. So baby bonds, that's another example. There's a there's a bunch of examples that we looked at. You know, local investing impact investing um, and uh, we actually could I'm, I'm convinced now that we actually could have a modern sophisticated financial system that in a democratic economy that's designed to serve us rather than extract from us yeah, great 
Um, so I'm going to ask you one more question, but I really do want to um, get to audience questions. So please be be thinking of them and and uh, online as online as well. Um, uh, and and you know my colleagues like I. Like, I'm interested in this idea. You talk about community wealth building. And I uh -huh. have wonderful colleagues in our community strategies group. Chris mm -hmm. Dessies, Benita Roberts, my former colleague, Janet Topolsky, like, all oh, did yes. lots of great work on this issue mm -hmm. of community wealth building and really thinking about, like, um, I'm just wondering if there is a place that sort of stands out for you as kind of like a, a model of this or something for people to think about um, in, in thinking about, like, how this how this makes a difference in a community and how a community lives. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I, um, our, our organization, the Democracy Collaborative, um, devised this term, community wealth building, back in 2005. And it's about local economic development. It's about building assets. It's about transforming communities by having them own and control their own assets, right? Um, and uh, one of the most exciting places that this, I, I, I work with a couple of colleagues who are doing this around the US and around the world in some very exciting ways. And one of the places that has done this is Preston, England. And this is a rust belt city. It was very broken down. Um, <clears throat> and they took on the city council, got excited about community wealth building and said, this is how we're going to do economic development. Um, they, they had all of their anchor institutions, including the schools and the police, the university, um, sign a pledge, we're going to invest uh, locally, we're going to hire locally, we're going to buy locally. So the, all of a sudden, um, hundreds of millions of dollars that had been spent outside the community was now being spent inside the community. They also said, we're going we're gonna to build worker-owned firms. Um, and um, so they actually, and, and there are a number of, pro number of processes. You want to look at land, you want to look at housing, all of these things you want to have as community assets. And um, they actually moved the needle on poverty and unemployment in Preston. Preston has recently been named uh, the best place to raise a family in the UK. So by community wealth building as an economic development form, they actually move the needle in, the, in this community. So it's very exciting. My colleagues now have more work than they can do. People coming at us wanting to do community wealth building. Because mayors, city councils, they know their communities are in trouble. They're looking for something different. And this is a form of economic development that works and is starting to, starting to catch on, I'm happy to say. Yeah, great. Great. We'd love to hear if there's questions in the audience or online. Hi, my name is Kyungsan. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm with the Economic Security Project. Thank you so much for sharing what you shared. Um, one of the questions that I have is, you know, when we talk about the big forces that are driving wealth extraction, mm -hmm. a lot of the times we know we're talking about the big corporations, big pharma, big food, et cetera. And I find that along with that analysis, we start having these narratives as advocates of stop private, do more public, uh -huh. and in that conversation, I feel like we lose the small business community. And I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about, especially you know, coming from Missouri, you know, oftentimes our small business owners are also our local legislators or our state legislators. Uh -huh. And so, would be curious to hear your thoughts about how we bring them into the conversations around wealth extraction, other forms of community wealth building that also makes them feel like they have a role in this process. Thank That's you. great. Thanks. Thanks for that. And I am from Missouri, from Columbia, Missouri. And uh, thanks for thanks for noticing that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think so, um, I'm a huge advocate of, of small business and family owned businesses. And one of the things I talk about in the book is um, is how that there's a uh, conveyor belt always functioning. Very few family businesses make it to the second or third generation as a family business. You sell to a multinational, you sell to a competitor. So we're always losing our businesses into this conveyor belt of ownership by big capital. So I would love to see um, family businesses supported or able to sell to other local um, uh, buyers or sell to, sell to workers. There's, a, there's kind of a movement, and Maureen's been helping to lead this. To, to have um, financing, so to sell to workers. So that's a kind of a built-in buyer for your, for your business. Um, and, and it's a way to preserve that business locally and you're not gonna lose jobs and, and so on. Um, so y yes, I, I think that um, 
small business and family businesses are our allies. And we need to distinguish. I, I make a, a distinction in the book between businesses that are profit-making and those that are profit-maximizing. And it's like the difference between being a social drinker and an alcoholic. <laughs> I ran a small business for 20 years. You got to have more money coming in than going out. I mean, that's true. That doesn't mean you have to make every dime off every back that you, that you can. Um, and we're kind of hoodwinked if we think that profit maximizing is a requirement. It's, it's not. Um, and I think, I think family businesses know that. Um, so yeah, and, and I think you know, small business, family businesses, they're being taken advantage of by Amazon, which is taking, takes 34% of every sale. Now you tell me it doesn't take that much money to run that platform, right? So there's a lot, there's a lot of gouging going on. I think those are our, our allies, uh, and I'd love to see us support them more. And one of the odd things, uh, well, two, two odd things. Number one, banks don't serve small and medium-sized businesses. Um, because you know, all of our, our we used to have they used to have be thousands of of community owned banks in this country, and they all got rolled up into Bank of America and Citigroup, and now and now we don't have the local banks that we used to have, and so you have these distant headquarters. They they don't lend to local businesses. Some local businesses have a hard time getting bank lending. Also, it's almost impossible to invest in businesses next door, right? Uh, probably all almost all of us are invested in Amazon. With not knowing it, because they're in they're in you know um, in, in the uh, index funds that we're in. But can we invest in a business next door? No, we can't because that we haven't built the the roads to do so, and we, and we need to to do that. Yeah, and I also appreciate you bringing up that the small business owners are often your legislators and and that sort of thing. And and I do think you know I I have been doing a lot of work on on employee ownership and mm -hmm. and building that in. And I and I will say like you know in conversations that we've had on the Hill and everything else, it's a very bipartisan kind of mm -hmm. support for that for that strategy. I think a lot of people see that as resonant with their with their values of responsibility, of fairness, of of you know valuing entrepreneurs on entrepreneurship and, and that sort of thing. I think people, I think there's a lot uh, to think about in trying to engage the small business community in this question. So That's thank great. you for that. Yeah. Say what? Oh, oh okay, thank you. Okay. I get my proper instructions here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I think the origin of all wealth is human labor. Hmm. Otherwise, wealth doesn't fall from the sky. Those forests you describe in some place or other, they're not worth anything until someone cuts down the trees hmm. or fertilizes them or turns them into lumber, et cetera, et cetera. So all wealth is a product of human labor. The fact that some people are able to exploit other people, they accumulate more wealth. The bigger people like Jeff Bezos, they have a lot of people to exploit and they become very wealthy. The small businessman, he only has a few people working for him, so he doesn't become very, he becomes a little wealthy. But the bottom line is this inequality persists because of the way the system is organized. Mm -hmm. So it seems unless you take a different system, which does away with the idea of commodity production, producing things and making things to make more money, exploiting labor, you're not going to solve this problem. And, you know, we've seen it go on. I mean, we've, this has been going on for hundreds of years. It's, you know, we... I mean, Thomas Pinckney wrote a book how, you know, a couple years ago, how the people with money continue to make more money and workers continue to get poorer. And the more wealth you have at the top, the more poor people you have at the bottom. So until you eliminate that very system, I don't see how you're uh, going to make any fundamental changes. So it's the whole capitalist system that creates these problems, unless we're going to break with that and go to a different system, which production is based on need. Hmm rather than on profit, I don't see a way out. Yeah, you're, um, my, my wife the other day picked up Karl Marx Capital, and he said, he says, says, oh, I've read Marx, says exactly that, that you know, all, all wealth is, is, is theft and comes from labor. Um, I, I don't want to get into that, that argument, but, um, and of course Marx was, was, a, was a brilliant analyst and has, has a lot uh, to teach us. But what I like to talk about is, is a democratic economy. I think that's designed, that's designed for all of us. Um, I think a lot of families want to have a few assets, and I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a, that's a bad thing. Um, but I think there's a way that, that when assets are held broadly 
and we, we have a right to the wealth that we create, that's when you start to have the economy economy that I think can work for all of us. So thank you for your remarks. Thank you so much. Dr. Alexander, Institute for Academic Management. I'm totally thrilled with your presentation. I've not read your book. I can't wait to read your book because there's a lot of England in there. <laughs> so that's fabulous, which brings to my mind in coming to the US and studying in, as a foundation in the UK, why we don't see more community wealth building, why we don't see more academics to apprenticeships to entrepreneurships, and why we find that in the poorer communities, the money doesn't stay in the communities, uh -huh. it goes outside of the communities, okay. where in some communities, it does stay in the communities, and that's what generates wealth building. So we're not reading your book, I don't know where education and the education system falls, um, and if you can answer, you know, where are we missing the mark? I'm about to launch an academy, just for that, nice. because that's a way to then generate generational wealth, per se, and then to go into home ownership um, and other aspects. But the entrepreneurship, apprenticeship to entrepreneurship, you can't go wrong with it. And I'm sure Preston did a great job with that as well. Yeah. Thank you for your remarks. I love, you. I love your accent. It's very, <laughs> it's very lilting. It's lovely to listen to. Um, I think education is critical, because like, as I said, you know, the mind that this, the, that this system arises from is, is the critical point of intervention. And so I think helping uh, young people or learning learners of all ages that there is another way to do things. One, one of the pieces of work I've, I'm most proud of um, that I've done <clears throat> over the years is I worked with a woman who did a Lakota translation of community wealth building. Because um, she took the, the community community wealth building framework, she took it to her. She uh, was Native American. She was Lakota, and um, began talking with women. And they realized this is exactly what had happened in, in uh, Native American reservations: that the wealth had been extracted um, from their from their reservations. And she began to say, "Well, you know, if we're going to have economic development, let's not bring in some white-owned business. Let's let's have." A native-owned business, and so she so she began to sort of permeate this this mindset there on on the reservation, and um, she helped start a cooperative of women quilters. I was happy to say I bought one of their one of their quilts. Um, it, it's no longer doesn't exist anymore. I'm sorry to say, you know, a, a, a cooperative ownership model doesn't necessarily make a successful business um, all by itself. But anyway, yes, I think translating community wealth building into different cultural contexts is critical. And, I, and I'd love to see that uh, happen, you said, um, in, in, in your community. Because I think that this process has happened all over the world, to communities all over the world. Um, and community wealth building is how we can begin to take back economic power um, in a way that works. And I th education is critical. So thank you. Go to an online question. Sure. Um, so I'm going to combine a few online questions here. Um, so uh, in a world of antipathy, where do we start? Who are we trying to reach? What is the message? How do we reach them? And how? Do, and what are some of the key myths? Could you build a little bit more on the key myths that we uh -huh. need to kind of dismantle? Yeah. So the the book is, has seven myths that I that I unpack. I, I talked about a couple here: fiduciary duty, um, materiality. There are others. So who, who are we trying to reach? Uh, one of the questions, I, as I've been out talking, the book is just out today, so, but I've been doing a little bit of talking uh, up till now. And one of the questions that I often get is people say, well, what do you say to people who disagree with you or who are opposed to you? And I say, I don't think we start there. Um, that uh, I remember back in the, in, the, in the 70s when second wave feminism came, um, you don't start a feminist revolution by arguing with your dad. <laughs> he may be the one who needs to change, but that doesn't mean you start there. You start with each other. We talk to each other. We strengthen each other. We have the frames. We have the understanding, the knowledge together, and we have solidarity with each other. I really think that, that the movement for system change needs that kind of solidarity. There's a lot of siloed work happening, but we don't recognize each other as colleagues in, in a similar movement. And I think we need to do that, and that that will strengthen all of our work. So I think that's where we start. I think um, uh, we start with, with talking with each other. 
Um, wow, we have a lot of questions now. So we'll just do like maybe one, two, three, and, and take them all at once. Um, and maybe get the gentleman back. Hi. Um, so I'm an urban planning student, so this will kind of shape my question a little bit. Um, uh, you talk about like community owned and that kind of thing. I was mm -hmm. kind of wondering if you're, if you've done any work or if you've seen any work that is done where maybe not a governmental structure owns an asset like like actual land or mm -hmm. buildings and that kind of thing, but there's an, an alternate organization that owns it in trust for the community so that rents and other things go back into the community. Uh -huh. Um, as opposed to just, you know, a business structure where you have workers and, and they, you know, own and that kind of thing. So Okay, I'm going to hold this. Uh, okay. So alternate ownership, I know the answer is yes, and you can talk about that. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you very much for your sharing. Um, I'm just wondering, you talked about like how financial assets have like sort of like expanded exponentially over the last um decades and at the same time we are seeing like governments cutting spending in local yeah. communities and even governments going bankrupt like Birmingham re recently did um so what do you think the government can do more to ensure or or to to make the the wealth that these like big corps extracted from the community and bring that wealth back into um uh the yeah but bring it back into the community and back to citizens' hands. Great. I'm going to stop you at a time oh. of financial abundance. Why do governments have no money? And <laughs> First of all, thank you. Um, I guess as a person trained in the social sciences, I'm thinking that part of the solution is to look to the social sciences and mm. to fundamentally... Um, put the human being back at the center. Because I'm just going to use one example. Um, let's say many of the countries in the global south that ask for advice from the multilateral uh, lenders. Mm -hmm. The first thing they tell them is to sell your, your minerals to the rest of the world. Right. Which, of course, pollutes the environment you know, mm -hmm. lowers life expectancy and a num number of other horrible things. Mm -hmm. And so there's no long-term thinking, and the, mm -hmm. the human being is left out of the equation. Yeah, I think okay. absolutely right. Now you can answer all three, because we okay. don't have very okay. much time, so I had Yes, to <laughs> human beings need to come back in the equation, and all of us matter. An economy exists for all of us. It doesn't exist just for corporations and for capital. Um, and that's what the free trade regime has, has sold us, basically, is corporations and capital have power and nobody else does. So you're right. And I think the social sciences are critical. Values are at the heart of this. And, and we can bring values into our economy. Um, we, you know, we're taught that values don't matter. But really, the only value that matters is, is financial wealth. Um, that's the one value that the system values. And we're saying, no, actually, there are other things we care about, like, like life, and the planet, and people. So thank you for that. A, a quick question about n government not owning everything. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And there are models out there. <clears throat> An example is community land trusts, um, where the community, a nonprofit, owns the land. It leases houses for 99 years. And then um, it sort of can, it keeps houses off the speculative market um, and keeps them affordable. And, uh, and uh, usually you have community voices and the government and governance and so on. So yes, I think that government can be a catalyst, and yet you can have other forms of ownership that are in charge, um, trusts. There, there's a variety of models. So thank you for that question. Um, and then what was the other one? Oh, about the role of government. Yes, yes, governments are local governments are feeling austerity. Um, uh, so what we're seeing with community wealth building and number of communities we're working with is you have um, a variety of players. It's not just government. You want government at the table, but you want CDFIs, community development financial institutions. You want other forms of nonprofits at the table too, working together. Uh, so you have, you have uh, communities working to build community wealth. And at the federal level, I just want to, I want to give a shout out to Elizabeth Warren, who's uh, my senator from Massachusetts, who happened to be on the plane when I was coming in from Boston. So that was kind of a, a treat. Um, she, she is one of the smartest 
I think, uh, federal legislators about this. And she has said, for example, um, the Accountable Capitalism Act, she's floated that says any company over a billion dollars in revenue needs a federal charter. They have to serve a variety of stakeholders. They have to become a B corporation, essentially, um, not just serving stockholders. And 40% of board seats should go to workers. I, I love that. It's an, it's, an, it's an example of what corporations need to evolve. They can't just be serving shareholders. That's just silly, uh, given the emergency that we're in right now. That's one piece. She's also talked about raving, uh, reigning in private equity, which we won't get into that. But I'll tell you, the game for investors is no longer in the public stock market. It's, it's in private, uh, private equity, which has swelled from one to 10 trillion. Um, and it's, it's not accountable. It's not transparent. And she has, uh, has floated legislation to rein in private equity. So those are some examples that need to happen that will help to spread the wealth uh, and keep, keep, keep the wealth extraction from being so, oh, so extreme. Great. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate this. I think this is a great, you did a, a good lightning round there. So I want to give you a round of <laughs> this applause. This was fun. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Good questions. Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully everyone will keep talking about this and thinking about this. I do think it's it's important to, you know, to ask questions and to and to you know um, feel like feel like you can. So um, so thank you all for coming. Really appreciate everybody's engagement today, and I'm going to turn it over now to to Matt for the you know for the grand prize drawing. <laughs> um, so we, we drew three names for uh, the book. Uh, if your name is Lydia Ma. Hassan Tyler and Angela Christian. You can see us outside. And, uh, we'll Congratulations! Nice. <laughs> Marjorie will be outside here. Uh, willing Happy to, to sign, sign books. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Thank this was All fun. Right. Thank you.